I guess a good way to start this episode, and we're back, and I was working on the theme song for the James Bond character study, and then news came across the wire that made me stop in my tracks, so I guess in honor of the song that I was hoping to debut today, that I won't, because what's the point, that's the James Bond character study. Good start. You're I'm, off to a I'm start. Co-host Mike One. This is co-host also Mike. This is Mike, Mike, and Oscar. This is well, it is episode two of the James Bond character study. It is our George Lazenby episode, but you know, things happen in the entertainment industry and us not being directly in the hub of it in LA as we are in Connecticut, it sometimes takes a little bit for news to hit us and we have to react accordingly. Uh, so you're getting a James Bond character study episode. With some news about the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, uh, it's not happening, at least not yet, Michael. This is going to be the Speed 2 Cruise Control (laughs) of podcast series (laughs) episode entertainments. Because I think we were geared up and ready. We got out of the gates really fast with Sean Connery episode. Which I got good feedback on. I mean, I know the numbers are what they are, but people that listen to it liked it. I I had fun with it, even though we kind of hammered it as much as we Mm -hmm. liked it. But this episode, we're going to crush Mr. Lazenby. (laughs) I'm just going to ruthlessly cream him. I'm so upset with that movie. And I feel bad that we're going to pause this James Bond character study out of necessity. (laughs) It's like the worst cliffhanger of all time. (laughs) Because a little thing happened with uh, the James Bond. And I have a Weekend Update-style joke uh, are, you, are you ready? Yes. Because it's terrible. I am ready. Mike, the new James Bond movie release date was bumped from April 10th to November 25th. Uh-huh. The studios figured fans would agree with the film's title and stay home. Isn't that terrible? Ba-dum-bump! James Bond walked into a bar today. I got another one. Good, good. Out of spite, he ordered a Dos Equis. <laughs> That's I like that oh, one. You like that one yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's the big news of the day. And yeah. obviously, there's no point in saving it for MMO Weekly. We, we actually, talking the pre production, we're debating bringing up the coronavirus's impact on Chinese movies and theaters last week, but we held off on it. We we're going to talk about it this weekend. And now we have to talk about it now because No Time to Die, the latest James Bond movie, the 25th, the last one in the Daniel Craig as Bond saga, has been pushed. It is now going to be. Uh, from the April 10th original debut date. It's being moved to November 12th as its debut in the UK, and it will be coming out here in the US November 25th or Thanksgiving weekend. You mean Craigsgiving? I'm going to stop. All you did, <laughs> all you did in your prep was write these jokes. No, uh, yes. uh, well, uh, look, there's plenty of money to be spent on Thanksgiving. Uh, we've also wondered if Craig's final bond would have any Oscar legs whatsoever because they're arguably the best made bonds of the franchise, as you will hear us talk about more today. Uh, so if they do have Oscars aspirations or any awards aspirations, now they are squarely within the time frame. They could take full advantage of that. We've seen in the past, in the recent past, especially Movies that got moved to Thanksgiving was were done so to kind of capitalize on awards momentum. Green Book just came out two years ago, was pushed from September to, to a uh, Thanksgiving release date. It went on to win Best Picture. So if this is going to be any kind of Oscars thing, this is a good move, not only for the Oscars momentum, but it's also a good move to keep people safe and out of theaters and for James Bond to make all the money it can. Okay. We think. We hope. If they had called it More Time to Live... <laughs> Instead of no time to die, would that ha- would the irony of that 
have caused them to still move it? Well, then you have to get people to the theaters, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like, you got to just spit in the face of this virus. So there's two things that speak to me about this movie getting moved. One, I like to think this is going to help the film's uh, ability to recoup its box office and make a profit. No doubt. We've seen and we talk about every MMOW, the impact of the Chinese market. So I'm hopeful. And obviously any blockbuster, any major studio blockbuster is reliant on the Asian market. And China has closed all their movie theaters. So there's no money to be made there right now because this coronavirus is a very big deal and people are terrified and basically even healthy people in the countries that are most infected right now are being quarantined and asked not to even go out on the street except for restricted hours. It's scary and I I wonder if this is going to have a ripple effect. I mean, what is it going to have on A Quiet Place 2? Are we going to be living in A Quiet Place (laughs) 2? Come November, it's be a documentary. So maybe, maybe it doesn't help the Bond box office. Maybe they could have cut their losses and made something, anything. Well, that's now. that's part two of this. My second wonder of this. So if you take that April tenth is the earliest in the date that films can be moved and blockbusters can be moved, I, I guess that would mean any blockbusters pre-Bond. So Onward, My Spy, A Quiet Place Two, Mulan, those that are coming out in March, they seem to be unmovable at this point. Obviously, if you're taking away the Asian box office, that's probably going to impact of those films Mulan the most, I would say, unless they hold off on the release altogether, which I could absolutely see Disney doing and would expect them to do at this point. Now, we don't have the usual tent poles in the winter, and we have the extra months before the Oscars. I wouldn't be surprised if there's another weekend or two in there where you know, Fast 9 could move or where A Quiet Place 2 could move. Yeah, it's certainly possible, and we do have... The tent poles that are out in the spring are there. Like, we do have the big Marvel movie in the first weekend in May. Black Widow's coming out. Yes. Does that get moved? Like you said, Fast 9 is coming out uh, later on that month in May. Does that get moved? And we've seen the direct impact the Asian box office has on those franchise pictures. Far From Home, I know obviously not a Black Widow movie, but the last MCU Spider-Man movie, it did over $350 million from all the Asian markets alone, including $200 million from just China. Fast 9 is due out May 22nd. Hobbs and Shaw, which came out last summer, had more than a third of its $585 million international box office come from just China, and China, again, doesn't have an open movie theater right now. We also have Disney's Artemis Fowl, which is due to come out, which is supposed to be a big blockbuster movie. So I wonder what the impact is going to be, like you just said. What happens with these films? Do they just let them play stateside and just hold the rights? Obviously, MGM and United Artists didn't want to do that with Bond. They want to roll it all out at one time. You wonder what the impetus for that is. Are they scared about the impact in America as more and more states seem to get infected with people who are falling victim to this virus? Are they worried about the Oscars chances and they just rather have everyone see it at the one time? Are they worried about spoilers online rather than one one market seeing it one day and waiting six months for the other market to see it? They're waiting about all those things, worried about all those things rather. And this is the truest tentpole in the business. Like this studio has been relying upon James Bond movies since the Connery days. I mean, Eon is James Bond movies, right? They, they this this franchise has been propping up United Artists, propping up MGM. Even when M, I mean MGM was having trouble a couple years mm-hmm. back. They were on the on the verge of of you know, basically bankrupt and Bond was the one thing propping it up. So, this is a true tentpole. They have to make profits on right. this. They cannot risk uh, a worldwide pandemic taking money out of their pockets. Do we have any proof that this isn't the beginning of The Walking Dead that we're all living through right now? No, we don't. (laughs) It could very well be. It's very scary. 
I guess looking at it, not from the zombie apocalypse standpoint, but going back to the movie standpoint, you should be worried if you're looking very much forward to any of the blockbusters coming out in the next couple months. I would keep an ear to the ground, keep on Deadline, keep on Hollywood Reporter, see what they're going to do and what these big studios that can afford to move these films are going to do. It means less, I guess, for the indie-rific films that we're all excited about. Like, I can't imagine that Promising Young Woman or or something like Saint Maud, something that's due to come out soon, is going to get moved. And I don't think it's that reliant on international money anyway. It seems to be more of an American-made, an American-centered and focused picture. So I, I, I and they don't have the money to move them. Like, like you know, Disney has the money to move uh, an Artemis Fowl, or like MGM has the money to move a James Bond movie. Plus, if you see those movies in theaters on opening weekend, you don't give an f. Right. You stare death in the face <laughs> and you laugh. <laughs> That's all we can do right now is laugh. So I guess what does this mean for this series going forward? What does it mean for MMO's uh, James Bond character study going forward? Um, We don't know. (laughs) The short answer is the only thing we know for certain is that we're going to pause it after this episode. We're not going to go forward and keep doing the Roger Moores and Timothy Daltons because we're not going to blow through the entire James Bond character study and then have you guys wait seven months to see a movie that it relates to. That would make sense. I mean, this will be in our archive. Yeah. We'll, we'll bring these two episodes back. And this opening is going to sound strange when you do click on this in a playlist. Yeah. So if you're coming at us from the future right now... This is how we sounded eight months ago before, before. All your loved ones turned into the undead. 28 weeks later and before you're just listening to nostalgic podcasts just to hear another human voice, which you can't hear anywhere else but here. Yeah, I'm glad we had the same take on this. Oh, they're moving James Bond? Well, this is turning into a horror movie then. Real life is over as we That's know it. That's it. We should stick, stock up on canned goods. Stick a fork in us. We're all done. All right. So we do have... One more James Bond character study episode, the second part. George Lazenby was only in one movie. He only had to get into character one time. Uh, We're going to put this on cruise control and see what happens. Michael, let's talk about getting into character. Yeah, his bio, uh, Lazenby was born in New South Wales, Australia. He served in the Australian Army then, works as a car salesman and mechanic before following a girl he loved to London, where he continues his job as a car salesman, being discovered by a talent agent who then persuaded him to become a male model. How far would you follow a girl you love? I don't think I'm crossing an ocean. (laughs) Not to China right now. No, certainly not right now. I I love you and you go anywhere with Corona. I'll I'll see you. But London. Uh, Does love exist? Do we know that for a fact yet? I'll go as far west as Albany, New York. Lazenby also got a ton of work and caught a break with a commercial for Fry's Chocolate Bars. Of course. Sound delicious. Eventually leading to his award for Male Model of the Year in 1966. But why male models? <laughs> From everything or nothing, the uh, documentary on Bond, Lazenby, Lazenby, yeah. he tells a story about how he finds out that Connery's not continuing as Bond, and he goes like straight to the mall or whatever stores they had back then. He gets a Rolex watch. He goes to Connery's tailor and his barber before going straight to the Eon offices in London where he sits down in the lobby and the receptionist turns her back on him, he immediately sprints up to producer Cubby Broccoli's office and just barges in. And the producer is like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I heard you need a new James Bond. So 
Broccoli's all right. Like, what what have you done? The audacity of this man, whatever. <laughs> He's like, I've I've worked in Hong Kong, I've worked in Russia, I've worked in wherever. He lies to him. And he gets a meeting, a follow-up meeting with the other producer, Harry Saltzman. So Saltzman throughout the meeting is, he's taken by the guy and he's like, seriously, I need to know what you've done. And Lazenby just kind of levels with him. And at at that moment, he's like, look, I got to be honest with you. I've never acted before. And Saltzman was shocked because he's like, you know, you've just fooled two of the most ruthless producers in the business. You're an actor. And they went with him at some point. I guess it makes sense that the the advice that the baby boomer generation kept giving our generation was, why don't you just go to their office and hand them your resume? Because when you have guys like George Lazenby filling in for Sean Connery on basically a women a dare, and it works out and he's in movies, why wouldn't that be advice that you hand to the younger generation? And this is the biggest movie star role on the right. planet at the time. Right. The most high-profile one, and this guy just barges into the office and says, give, give me the part. Imagine if you're Sean Connery and you hear this story and you're like, a guy was studying you. He went to your table. Taylor, <laughs> like he, he's followed your every move to become you. That's creepy. It's even creepier when you hear him tell the full story. I told the nice parts, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> I thought George Lazenby is a dead ringer for a young Clive Owen, and he ends up okay. wearing the exact same outfit as Leo did for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this past summer. That's right. Tarantino had to use this look as a template. It's almost the exact same thing. I think uh, the exact same thing was worn. In the 60s by a lot of guys. You think so? You think that yellow turtleneck yeah, was, was just the go-to? It was a trendy. The old turtlenecks <laughs> were definitely in. We found that out by a lot of period pieces. But, all right, so I, I did some more research on why he only did one Bond. And, and accounts do differ a little bit, like I said in the last episode. But Lazenby was extremely difficult on set. This is according to everybody. <laughs> and he made many demands of the cast and crew. He was upset. They didn't take his suggestions. Diana uh, Rigg confirmed all this. Fired some shots across the bow, let's just say. She was. She said she was cast to give some gravitas to the production as a classical actress since, since she was cast opposite a male model without any experience as an actor. Nice unquote. to know that that's, that's <laughs> not being a trend in Hollywood where they just cast people that look beautiful and don't really have talent. That's me being sarcastic. Famously, Lazenby was quoted in the papers to accuse Rick of eating garlic before their love scene. She was on the record denying as much, but would say that her lunch had garlic in it some years later. But still, Rick was not complimentary of Lazenby's career. She said, quote, George definitely was the architect of his own demise as a film star. And it seems like she was right. Uh, Lazenby and announced that he was moving on from Bond before the premiere of the movie. Not smart, George. And he shows up to the to the event with uh, hippie long hair and a beard against the wishes of producers. Uh, he feared, I guess, that he was going to be typecast in the role and says... Yeah, like, that's the point, man. <laughs> it, it was crazy because him and his agent were, like, talking to each other, according to reports, that... Bond was over. Like the James Bond era was over. It's going to be all, you know, easy rider. It's not it's not going to be it's not going to be this world where these clean-cut guys go and they yeah, do Yeah, and they definitely things. try to undo the James, the legend of James Bond with what happens in this movie or at least towards the end of it. A little bit. Yeah. George uh, did not sign the seven film contract, the alleged seven film contract that was out there. And the the agent he had at the time pushed him to act in Hollywood films. But Lazenby basically took a bunch of a lucrative commercials. Man after so my own heart. Very strange. <laughs> I'm not going to do plan. any of that hard work. <laughs> I'm going to shoot this 30 <laughs> second spot for 
Malted Milk. <laughs> Ovaltine. George Lazenby still pursued an acting career, though, and he has become an actor with 62 additional credits after playing Bond, but other than some TV appearances in Hawaii Five-0 and General Hospital and a voice acting role in Batman Beyond, as a matter of fact, not a lot of recognizable IMDb no. entries on his CV. Not at all. But let's go through the box office here for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. It had a $7 million budget, only made 22.7 stateside, 64.6 worldwide in terms of millions of dollars. It got a Globe nomination for New Star of the Year in the actor category for George Lazenby. But, you know, this is half the box office of the last few with double the budget. Yeah, well, it's a decrease in budget from the last Connery movie, right? The one right before it. So that kind of makes sense as the studio was probably hedging their bets on this new James Bond. And On Her Majesty's Secret Service was able to get about a third less of the budget of You Only Live Twice, which was Connery's last Bond prior to Lazenby taking over. That had double the budget, huh? Yeah. Uh, you Only Live Twice had a $111.6 million worldwide box office. That was the last Connery Bond before he came back. That was $47 million more than what On Her Her Majesty's Secret Service ended up doing worldwide, and while the domestic box office was equally disappointing, having fallen off nearly 50% from the latest Connery Bond offering, Lazenby's $22.7 million domestic box office was still good enough to continue MGM and Unitas artist's streak of every Bond movie finishing in the top 10 highest grossing films of their year up to that point, as it barely extended that streak, finished 10th of the top 10 highest grossing domestic films of 1969. In terms of the ratio, though, we went over in the last episode, it's still, it's over 9 to 1. Yeah. I mean, every $9 spent, you get a dollar, or every $1 spent, you get $9 back. It made money. I wonder if that's considered a downturn because the series started so hot so recently. Yes. If you're talking the first movie only came out seven years before and they made $50 million on a $1 million budget, when you're looking at 50 to 1 stats and now you're down to $9.20 per dollar stat... I wonder if there's a little panic at the disco there. There was panic and there were discos. <laughs> That's uh, except true. George That's Lazenby true. George Lazenby was not going to one of the two <laughs> things. He was panic. No, he was uh, he was he was living a good life making commercials after this. But Genius. let's let's go into the historical significance of uh, Lazenby's performance of the film on the industry here, Michael. Look, this movie. I, we we don't really do production value reviews here, but I think it's important to do it for this movie. Those production values did not help. George Lazenby uh, and did not help his performance. Some weird decisions made with them. Like you have these lush landscapes and you're shooting them from up high, whether it's a chopper or something, and it looks great. And then they cut to these close up where the green screen is so painfully, obviously done. Well, they're trying to go for some realism, right? They're trying to make this a more serious bond in a way. Otherwise, they're telling really unfunny jokes. But this is not the camp fest of the last few. Now, it's only camp. It's, it's only campy in our, you know, look back right. machine here. But in the sense that the last few are much more relaxed, they're mm-hmm. they're, they're much more uh, upbeat. This this movie is is not that at all, especially when you when you look at the the plot arc. But in terms of the sound, Mike. <laughs> yeah, so there's a point in this movie where James Bond needs to portray himself and pass himself off as a man named Hillary Bray, which is some kind of salesman. I think he's lip syncing the entire the entire time as Hillary Bray. You think so? <laughs> Perhaps. You, you agree? <laughs> it's, it's almost as bad as Jonathan Price and the Two Popes speaking like Jonathan Price and then speaking like famed Argentinian actor Ricardo Darren. 
for the rest of the film. It's preposterous. He is an Aussie Bond, and then he's being dubbed by the real Earl of Grantham from Downton Abbey. It's terrible. Nicely done. Yes. Yes. Uh, not great. I would agree with you. And if you, if you want to talk about sight, I would say there's more than just this green screens, but the green screen scenes are so striking, especially because they're done in what I thought was a decent for the time, a decently shot and decently presented chase scene down the mountain. This is the infamous Bond ski chase scene, the first one before Pierce Brosnan basically redid it. The chase scenes are much better than the fight scenes, I will say, because yeah. I think they live in the wide shots for much longer because Agreed. they got stunt people involved. Mm -hmm. However, when they do cut to the close-ups, it's obviously just a guy in a warehouse <laughs> with a video on in the back. It's silly. And it's and it's it can't be realistic. And that's the the hard part. And I don't think it was even realistic back then. And that's probably why, you know, the producers were watching this or even Lazenby's watching this. He's like, this is not good, is it? And you could be absolutely right. I mean, even the lighting. Like sound, sight, whatever, but even the lighting. Like I understand there are moments you're supposed to just show the silhouette, and you're only supposed to so show darken. But you contrast some car chase scenes and how they're shot and how they're lit in this movie versus just Goldfinger, which was prior to this movie coming out. Right. Yeah, it's night and day. Like I guess it's it's day and day, but one's a darker day. One's a darker day. It's cloudy. One's right, a cloudy it's cloudy. Day. Chance of meatballs. Oh, I wish. <laughs> Acting, Mike. All right. So how was his performance? Here's what I can't figure out though. Mm -hmm. The the fighting was bad. And the is it just the editing? Were his stunt doubles just too recognizable? They didn't look enough <laughs> like him that they 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 had to make all those jarring cuts. Why were the fights so bad in this movie? And if you listen to you know all the big Bond fan podcasts, if mm -hmm. you listen to all the, the the true believers out there, they love the fight scenes in this movie. So what the hell? Yeah, I, I'm on record. I actually like this movie more than some other early Bonds. I stand by that, even though we're going to get to some truly horrific stuff that's in this movie that I did not remember. Um, but the fight scenes aren't the reason why I'm high on it. Yeah. <laughs> I can agree with that. It's almost like a student film editing yeah. it's just terrible it's and like, i would go again i go back to what i said about the lighting just before there's there's aspects of this that truly look amateurish and and there's no rhythm the time, yeah. and there's no sync with the music at all that's for sure uh in terms of lazenby hanging around all the cool haunts of mr jimmy bond there look i mean this guy can hang next to any woman on the planet and feel comfortable in his own skin he can hang at the casino he can hang in a beautiful hotel he's he can pull off the refined speech and the you know the the, the high class you know know-it-all uh, uh, nature of of mr bond I mean, it works he's cool maybe we don't try to have you act so much as you just kind of exist and maybe you have some one-liners and it could work out because you're right he looks the part absolutely does his acting live up to it and obviously, Ashton Kutcher has grown into well, a fine actor. I don't know that Mr. Lazenby did here. Tyrese, right? Tyrese yeah. started out his career as basically scenery. Right. Right? And he's the male model, and mm -hmm. he's in all these movies. And he's And that, that's the way he is. And he doesn't have to carry a movie. He doesn't have to be the you know the, the character actor until much later in the Fast and Furious movies. And he does a great job right. now. I mean, now the guy can act after getting his reps over the years. This is Lazenby's first movie. And I do see some potential. Sure. Like he Absolutely. Delivers, I agree. He delivers some jokes with a constant smile, and he's got charm. He almost breaks the fourth wall in all those walkaway lines. So I, I really enjoyed some of that. I do think he's got a physical presence. I, I just wish 
he had some moral character. Well, I think two lessons are learned here. And the first one is don't just <laughs> hire someone because they go to Sean Connery's tailor. Uh, maybe yeah. you can make sure that he has a, a resume that's more than that. But I, I want to echo for the second thing what you're trying to say here. He wasn't so abhorrently bad that I was ever taken out of the movie. It's right. just... You know, the guy's not Sean Connery. We have seen much worse right. from non-actors, from right. first-timers. Absolutely. Uh, much, much worse. And if we tried right. to do this and, <laughs> this be, and be a James great Bond, segue at our own expenses here, but keep like, going. We would be a mixture between <laughs> D. Reynolds and the Chris Farley bus driver from Billy Madison. We would have no chance. Red no face, yelling on the bus! Red face, bad accents. <laughs> it would be gruesome. And this guy, uh, he's got talent. You could tell yes. he's got talent. Agree. But since we can't be super spies, it's probably a good time to talk about why we can't be James Bond. So that'll kick off our spoilers section. That's a good time to do that now. Let's head into a spoiler warning. Spoilers ahead! This is a spoiler warning. This is the spoiler section for the George Lazenby entry, part two of the Mike, Mike, and Oscar James Bond character study, which will be put on hold after this. If <laughs> you don't know what we're talking about, be sure to go listen to our intro, please. But uh, as it is, part two of George Lazenby, the James Bond character study brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Mike, let's talk about how we can't be super spies. Yeah, this segment is called The Spy Who's Not Me, and it's about the fantasy elements of Bond movies, why we want to but could never be Mr. Jimbo Bond. This probably says something about me and that I keep only focusing on his physical exports in these movies. Mm -hmm. and I, well, I can't do that. <laughs> and the first one, obviously, is skiing. Look, I'm not a man that could ever have my feet not on the ground because bad things just happen. I hated every child I went to school with who had their birthday party at our local roller rink here because I was always the kid hugging the wall and like crawling along the wall because if I left the wall for even a moment, I would fall on my ass and my Never. ass would be bruised for days. Never. Never have I felt closer to you. Because that was me too. Of course it was. It was. To a comedic effect. Right. And even worse was my brother John. So was that, so when you guys went to college, it was just, just like an awkward section of the dorm <laughs> that they put all the kids in. All right, he can't balance. They're probably not going to do extreme sports in this section of the dorm. Right, yeah, that's pretty much what it was. Together. We were I, quarantined before Corona was cool. <laughs> I picture these clowns as not being able to ski. Yeah. I have a hard enough time getting my feet off the ground and going into a car. Right. Which, by the way, again, there's some great driving in this through the snow and ice, which my Kia Optima just could not handle. No, Bond winds up fist fighting and racing and chasing his way through the Winter Olympics in this movie. <laughs> and, really it, and, it's, and it's a lot of fun, and it's what you want to see if your setting is Switzerland and the Alps, mm -hmm. and that, that's, that's awesome. But I just don't get this one setting, Mike. Okay. And this is the fantasy setting that it just seems to me that it's pandering. The Swiss Grand Prix is run every year. I looked this up. It's okay. been run since 1934. Of all the pictures I found on Google, and Google, you could scroll down on for a lot of pictures. <laughs> they never run it in a blizzard! 
what the hell's going on? There's like six inches of snow on the trodden track in a stock car race. Yeah, and more than that, the barricades on either side of the track are not secure at all. His car just comes off the mountain and joins the race. To be fair, all the cars are going 30 miles per hour because it's a track full of snow. It's not a racing (laughs) track. Gotta have the windshield wipers going. (laughs) It's not a racing track. It's snowing. It's Switzerland, and they're having a car race with a million people there, Uh and of course they're going to drive off and kill everyone. Everyone's going to kill everyone even going 35. We drive around these roads around here. We were... I mean, we're almost slipping and sliding everywhere. I like that they at least leaned heavily into the snow and ice aspect of it all because you're set up by the ridiculous Grand Prix event that's taking place in a Category 5 blizzard. Winter Storm Barry is hurtling its way through right now, but they're like, screw it, we need to have the... So how does this big movie culminate? Literally a fist fight on a luge, a one-man bobsled going down the track. So you're right. When you said that he's going through the Winter Olympics, literally the Winter Olympics was the basis for this movie. And whenever that's not happening, he's basically amongst a bunch of supermodel cult follower yes. girls. Yes. So, he ba- so we think he's going to like a lab mm-hmm. with a bunch of eggheads, mm-hmm. literally and figuratively. <laughs> and he's up there with Dr. Evil and all of his, all of his lab people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's just a section of beautiful girls that have mind control. Right. The agents of chaos on. happen to be these bikini supermodels. He's Dr. Charles Manson Blofeld, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we just have this mind control plot that never pays off. Never. There's so much introduced in this movie, and they have to happen to correlate with certain segments so that we're going to bring you. Yes, I'm, I'm getting just a little ahead of myself. go nowhere. <laughs> Alright, well, we're building up to it, but let's get into the next seg- segment called Live and Let Dad. Live and Let Dad joke! <laughs> now, I just watched Live and Let Die, by the way. They play that song like 19 times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was one of the forerunners of like, let's, let's play, get that theme song into people's minds, play it different ways and different tempos. Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But anyway, this segment is about the best quotes and one-liners from Bond. So after James Bond rescues a girl from committing suicide, fights off random attacks on the beach and then watches that girl speed away having stolen his car. This is how the movie starts with the new introduction to the new James Bond. He basically looks to the camera like you've alluded to already basically breaks the fourth wall and says this never happened to the other fellow. I love this. I love this. I thought that was great. It was a wink at the camera. I know some Bond diehards Mm -hmm. don't like that line in particular. Well it, it opens up. If you play this in the meta world the possibilities that are just introduced right. from that one line. That's the that's the equivalent, I said, of the Halloween 1 movie. Jamie Lee Curtis's Halloween 1 being played on the TV at the bar during Halloween 3. <laughs> like, what does it mean? <laughs> I don't care. I like it, though. I laughed at it. I thought it was good. Uh, the very... Uh, I mean, this is gross. Bond mm-hmm. initially meeting who would become his future father-in-law... After having just slept with his daughter. Right, the night before. Right. Father-in-law, first thing, doesn't know James from Adam, says to him, I've been informed of everything you've done for my daughter. Everything? Don't worry about that. Don't you worry about you just having a full-blown sexcapade with my daughter who sits right beside us as we talk about her within earshot. I need you for bigger and better things, James. But my daughter's vagina and her, her sanctity and tranquility, you don't worry about any of that. That's yours, bud. I'm gonna just 
scream at this man later. I'm going to save it because I'm going to scream at this mentor character who's proven exactly right in this movie and makes me want to kill him. I just, oh, God damn them. Uh, and then the only other one I had is that when James Bond is in Blofeld's big hideout, sitting beside all these mentally deranged supermodels now who are under Blofeld's yes. control, he, one of them writes in lipstick her room number on James' inner thigh because, of course, she can get access to it because, of course, he's wearing a kilt for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> Blofeld asks if everything's okay. Just a slight stiffness coming on. That was funny. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> that was, that was really dirty. It was funny. I laughed. There was, like, multiple laughs because, all right, wow, that's kind of sexy. She's writing it on his thigh. And then... Yeah. Less one-liners than I would have thought if they were trying to establish a new bond coming oh, off of Connery. I didn't write many down because you hit on the big ones. Yeah. There's just one more coming later on with Dr. Evil that I'll talk about. But, like, there's, there's a bunch of misses, too. Like, there's when he ties the guy up, he's like, I should have gift-wrapped you. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, it's, <laughs> like, really weak. Oh, yeah. There's some weak ones. There's some bad ones that Austin Power will ca Powers will capitalize on <laughs> much, much later. But, all right, I saved a lot of my writing for this section because, Doctor, please, oh, God, no. Yeah, this is a very appropriate category title and a very appropriate analysis coming on for this movie. It's about Bond's issues with women. And, all right, first of all, I hate the money penny scenes in all of these Bonds. She is, is there a more disregarded and underserved character in cinema history than Money Penny is in this movie? Every scene here. <laughs> Money Penny is like the dream female subordinate in an office. And I've seen treatises written about this. Righteous treatises. I mean, basically, she's cool with sexual harassment. He grabs her ass in the scene, and then he kisses her on the lips. By dream, you mean a gross male fantasy. Gross dream. male yeah. fantasy. Not an actual, yeah. It's just horrible. Yeah. Is what, I'm, what I mean, but she is like the predator's dream. Right. And they never really actualize it. It's just Bond... At the office, needs somebody to flirt yeah. with. He needs a handful of boob. What that's what that's fuck? what she's there for. It's horrible. But they still write her as if she has real feelings. So she's basically letting, not letting him, but she's being led along by him. He knows that he's doing it. The movie ends in a wedding where James Bond marries someone else and Money Penny shows up. And they have a long yeah. stare down. What the fuck are you doing to this poor girl? She's Stockholm Syndrome. Jesus. It's, it's, it's really awful. All right, so that's not the only woman that gets horribly mistreated by this script, though. Don't you worry. Let's have a quick rundown of our introduction to Diana Riggs' crazy character, who ends up being the woman that Bond first sleeps with, meets the father of, and will eventually marry at the end of this movie before she is gunned out of existence for no reason again whatsoever. Hmm. Tracy's trying to walk into the ocean. <laughs> That's how we meet her. So she she's suicidal in the first yeah. scenes. I'm guessing she's trying to get away from her father's right. control. That's what it and seems like. And from all of these gangsters right. guarding her. Okay, so we have that big thing on the beach happen where Bond beats up the bad guys. Tracy steals Bond's car with zero explanation, portraying the stereotypical damsel in distress. Yes. One scene later at the casino, we see her tits first. And tits second. <laughs> There's two shots. Yes, the camera fixated. It's like a porn. Literally yeah. just cuts it off at the neck and the navel. Yep. And she's wearing this deep V, just boobs McGee everywhere. Such a long camera shot. So gross as we're acting as Bond's POV here. Where casino staff are insisting she pay the debt that she doesn't have. And once again, for the second time in as many scenes, Bond needs to swoop in and save the damsel in distress. And then 
She offers to have him meet her in her room as a means of repaying her, but it turns out it's a trap that Bond foils, and immediately, even though she tried to set him up, she's able he's able just to join her in bed. So there's a back and forth. Uh, I'm not going to get into it, but Mike, he beds a suicidal woman the night after he saves her from killing her, her, herself. Yeah, yeah. This man is scum. This is gross. He is scum. <laughs> In the next scene, he is escorted by a bunch of mob guys to Draco, an Italian mobster who knows about Bond's affair with his daughter, like Mike said earlier, uh, Diana Rigg. This guy, who looks like me, has a daughter, <laughs> Diana Rigg. Number one problem. All right, I'll get past it. It makes no sense. His mother was English. All right, shut up. The mobster mentor character basically tells Bond that his future sex life with his daughter should be her therapy. Yes. Because Bond, he interjects. She needs a therapist. Mm -hmm. She needs professional help is what Bond's saying. But the father says, no, what she needs is a man to dominate her. Essentially, she needs a man to love her into sanity. Now, you think, all right, this must be the bad guy, right? right. This must it's... be the guy whose antithesis is refuted for the rest of the movie, correct? No, this movie proves this disgusting mobster yeah. mentor father exactly right yeah. in terms of the plot. I'm right. not saying exactly morally right. Correct. Exact, it's exactly very morally wrong. Morally wrong. <laughs> Now, they think they're, you know, putting her voice in. And that's the most probably ridiculous part. Right. And that's the most upsetting part because Diana Rigg is wise to her father's plan in the next sequence. She goes to the stables. She meets her father, who, of course, has Bond there. It is a plant. She finds out from her girlfriend, or she's suspicious when her girlfriend basically is like, no, nah, you'll like this guy. You know, allow this setup to happen. But she sees through it. She knows who Bond is. She basically knows that Bond's trying to get to her father, or at least she suspects as much. So she lays Bond's plan on the table and basically tells her father listen he wants information from you he doesn't want me so you just tell him the information or i'm never going to see you again so she kind of inverts the plan here for a second the father's plan is to have bond fuck her into sanity that's the f ridiculous plan here and what happens after all this she goes to her car she cries and this is what the writers write for her yeah they and they let Bond have a have a romance montage, montage after that. Of, of relationship building between this character who's are you kidding me? Yeah, uh, and it's not if that's not bad enough. There's an opportunity a couple times in this plot for the father to at least resubmit what he thinks should happen with his daughter. He can, he can grow happens, as a character, yeah. and he all he, he just doubles down. Every time, including assault and including on her wedding day, you got to obey your husband. Like, I wholeheartedly buy into what you said to me, too, in that the writers think they were giving her a voice in this. Like, this was their version of being more feministic. And to be fair, I do think the Tracy character has far more agency than any of the Sean Connery damsels. The They'll... sad part about this is these writers are trying. They're right, trying right. To have a, That's exactly a, more a great way to put it. They're trying to have a more progressive stance 
uh, on their on their female characters, but this is it's just like it's still caveman like. It's like they take a minor victory. It's a quarter step forward, so they're like, okay, we can take eight giant steps backwards now because we had her drive capably in the ice. They're just showing their ignorance on yeah. full display. I mean, this is nonsense. It's ridiculous. It's disrespectful. Obviously, that's why we have two segments <laughs> for the worst about this movie, and the next one is called "Always Say Never Again." This is more moral issues with the film and some of the worst scenes and themes in this particular case. Michael, there's a just an I awful mean, scene with the fembots in the mountain. So, lest you think we're being harsh on the writers and interpreting what they're doing wrongly and saying we're missing something, there's literally this cult of eight, nine beautiful women. Mm-hmm. A majority of them, I think all but two of them, are white, are white females. There's a black woman and an Asian woman. They all gather around James Bond in a kilt to sit down and have dinner. Every white woman is eating a regular meal, mm-hmm. like James Bond is. We pan over, the black woman is eating just a banana, and the Asian woman, dressed as basically this old-school geisha-type character, is eating just a bowl of rice. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? It's like a bunch of kindergartners from the 1970s wrote this movie. It's just absurd. How does that get by MGM? For Christ's sake. I, what, I mean, are we, I guess what I'm learning most from this study is that you hear all the time how non-progressive towards oppressed group and towards minorities America has been up until as recently as like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. This is a blockbuster movie that was one of the top 10 highest grossing movies of its year right before the 70s started. Yep. And here it is on full display, glorified forever again in our box sets and Blu-rays. And and the whole plot line is just thrown out. It's thrown out for what? It's thrown out for chase scenes, fight scenes, and storm the evil lair scenes on the mountain. Because you have this entire plot with these cult flop followers, supermodel sleeper agents, these Stepford wives, whatever. Who you are want. throwing themselves at him, by the way. Right, but you you have this thing being set up for mm-hmm. literally a half hour. Right. And the only reason they're there is basically to sleep with Bond yes. in between chasing. Yes. That's the only That's reason. It. That is their substantiation to this plot. Oh, by the way, they're the characters of chaos that Blofeld's trying to hypnotize, and yes, he's, he's mind-controlling them, and they don't know what they're doing. So... What does that mean? That means that mentally ill women are throwing themselves at James Bond and he's just openly accepting them. He literally sleeps with one woman to the next to the next in this movie, in this cult that he knows is a cult. So let's backtrack a second for the uh, Tracy story again, the Diana Rigg story, because before Bond goes off to find Dr. Evil, Diana Rigg basically tells her father in the car while Bond is, you know, bonding up with the uh, office there of the Swiss lawyer she tells her father that she's in love, essentially, but she's probably not in in a situation where Bond loves her. She kind of get understands it. Tracy's the smartest character in this movie. Yes. Now, she has the amount of agency in this plot line where she puts herself on the mountain mm-hmm. where Bond is going to be. Does she necessarily know she's going to run into Bond on that ice skating rink? No. But why else would she be exactly. there? She Agreed. went up there on purpose by her own recognizance to figure that out. Now, Bond, in a few scenes later, is going to tell her he, he loves her and will you marry me. Mm-hmm. But he takes one business trip away from this woman. <laughs> 
from the love of his life. Yeah. One business trip, and he's sleeping with two girls on the same night. Yep. Instead of doing his job, <laughs> and then the next night he is caught and captured for trying to sleep with another woman. <laughs> Or it's the same woman the second time. But Mike, it's You know, just, when you put it like that. That's what happened in this plot. When you say it so callously, in fact... I am rooting factually. for James Bond to die in this movie. I'm rooting for him to die. There's no way scum. around it. There's he's really scum. no way around it. Like, look, I appreciate beautiful women. I love beautiful women. I, I'm not against, you know, seeing sexy ladies on screen. I'm not against that. But this is like fucking caveman stupid shit. Yeah, and, and look, we're, we're, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And we only know so much and can only bring so much perspective because we're two white guy dopes sitting here behind the microphone in a basement. But this is pretty glaring to even us, right? <laughs> Their courtship is a morally bankrupt affirmation of, a, of the mantra for toxic max masculinity. Yeah. Yeah. Because what happens? Everything goes towards what the father always said yeah. and what Bond wants to do no matter what. Tracy's attraction to Bond might be as much Stockholm Syndrome as it is romantic love. You can only figure that much out after the fact. Minutes after we think that they might actually have a deeper relationship, that Bond is changing, right? There's an avalanche and what happens in the plot? She is immediately turned into a damsel in distress right from then. So it's it's upsetting because you think she won Bond over. She literally joined Bond. You have an Bond. awesome character here. She joined Bond in Bond's game, right? right? Uh, in his work and proved herself as a driver, as a getaway. Multiple times. She saves James Bond's life multiple times. You have established this great female character despite all these horrible things. Every man is doing to her throughout this plot. You have this this phoenix moment rising to be saving the day and just disregard. And then she's a damsel in distress yep. on the mountain for Bond Completely to save, right? For the father to save. And she actually fights her way out too, which, okay, again, is another half measure. Because it's, it's a half measure because she beats up a henchman. Yep. But the second she tries to go back in and save Bond, which she's heroically about to do, the father punches her out. I was in such disgust. I actually muttered a monosyllabic, oh! Like, I couldn't believe, even for the time, she handles her own shit, takes care of henchman X, is being ushered towards the helicopter to get off the mountain, but wants to go back to save Bond because Bond's still doing his Bondness stuff. She's proven to be able to take on men, proven to take on women. She can handle the elements of nature. Nothing can stop this girl. And yet, when she disobeys her father's order to get on the chopper, he literally punches her in the face, and she gets knocked out, and he gives a, a smarmy one-liner that's basically, well, sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do. What? <laughs> what? Bond has to save the day. The man has to save the day. It's just bullshit. It's ridiculous. And thankfully, the industry's come a long way since then. But uh, it, it didn't. It didn't go well in this movie in terms of the, of the feminist movement. And all right, they get married again. A chance, an opportunity for some change, for some characterization. Do you think James they did Bond. that to basically set up a new franchise with this Bond and yeah. write off Connery? Well, no, but they're they're bringing his story forward by keeping his character the same. That this story thrives on Bond essentially just re-upping, running it back. 
Right. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. I this agree with is that. what they're trying to do here because the second you think he's actually going to mature. Half step and, forward, eight steps back again. And we think that, uh, all right, he's married, he's going to settle down, or at least this is going to be some drama, right? The father gives that horrible line, obey your husband and all the things. And On their like, wedding day! And, he, and she's like, well, I'll bo- obey him as I've obeyed you, which is supposed to sound like a snappy comment, right? She gets back at her father there because she really didn't listen to him. But you know what? The character did listen to the father yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. She did. She's doing. Ex- she's. Exactly I didn't even read it as snappy, Mike. To be honest with you, she's exactly where the father subordinate. wanted her to be from the start of the movie. This was the father's yeah. end game. He explicitly tells Bond in the first scene we meet the guy. And this is where it is, and he's about to pay off Bond. And Bond, all right, half measure. No, take your money back. I'm not taking your dowry, which was the bribe. And she sees that, and she, or I don't know if she sees that, but she's whatever. She is smitten with Bond, and she, they're talking about their future on the car ride out of there. And what is she and her future plot line reduced to? A stinger scene to bring Bond back to a revenge movie. To, to bring Bond give him back a new motivation to, to go after Blofeld. Just fucking kill his way through Europe. Yeah. And, and it's funny because a lot of this plot was MI6 trying to dissuade James Bond from chasing Blofeld anymore. And they end the movie on the same note, giving him a whole new motivation and a whole new reason to have hate and go after Blofeld once again. That's so why. you're right. Nothing. We're running on a hamster wheel here. That's why Connery in the next movie is throwing guys through walls. <laughs> Where's Blofeld? It's terrible. All right. Well, that's the heaviness. Let's try to add some levity to this god-awful, misogynistic movie. I would like to remind everyone, I still think this plot is better than some of the Connery ones. I said that at the outset, and I stand by it, even though there's some horrible treatment of characters here. Yes. All right. The next segment, though, is Q Only Lives Once. It's about the cars, the gadgets, and the technology of James Bond. And we start with some great technology. Right, Mike? What (laughs) in the fuck was this? (laughs) You have Sean Connery, who did, what, six of these movies to start the franchise. Yeah. You get rid of him and what was... Probably made the headlines. Yes. You got this new model guy taking up the 007 motif. He's going to be your new playboy. The franchise is going to be built around him. You're going to introduce him in a killer way. You want him to start off on the right foot with the audience. And what's the very first scene of the movie we see? Q introducing radioactive lint that is never referred to again. So, I mean, the... The obvious rebuttal from a lot of people is probably like, well, they're setting it up in the next movie. This is going to be an arc over three stories, over two, over four. Sure. I would guess that's out there somewhere. Somebody has to theorize as much. Imagine if Daniel Craig in in November brings out radioactive lint and expects the audience (laughs) just to keep up with it. But this is the new modern film, right, Mike? We have Q starting out a lecture. We have computers now. And then yada, yada, yada. There's militarization. So, of course, we have to do likewise here at MI6, my good man. Here's radioactive lint. Right. That's, the, that's the first the four lines of, of technology. What in the hell are they thinking? All right. Look, it, 
let, let's be honest about this movie in terms of tech. I mean, there's not as much. No, I mean, this Q is, is minimalized. This is vintage spy yep. stuff, and, and some of it works. It's just like a sheer suspense film at times. It works okay if the production values were better or if you can tolerate them or look back at them as being cutesy or whatever. I mean, Bond does get himself in some harrowing situations. There are some long, longer fights. We don't really get any cool tech from Bond's side, though. No, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing either, especially if you're introducing a new leading man to the series. You want to show that he's very capable and can handle his own shit without the, you know, deus ex machina attached to him. When he's on one ski, and that whole sequence yeah. is pretty awesome. Yeah, and then I he, agree. It, it's pretty funny how long... <laughs> That guy falls <laughs> off the cliff. It's great. But <laughs> all that was missing was the goofy <laughs> as he's falling. But yes, I agree. But no, I didn't really have a problem with him being left to his own devices, so to speak, without devices. Literally. I, I was fine with that. Yeah, let's let's give this guy all the room to run and establish him as a badass ass kicker. Give him a sidekick that's showing to be capable. And you know what? We get Diana Rigg driving mm-hmm. like a Willie T. Ribs level of brilliance. She was fucking awesome. On the racetrack. And even though it's a preposterous stock car race in a Swiss blizzard, <laughs> you get that 1969 Mercury Cougar XR7. Wow. Looked awesome. It looked awesome in the beginning of the yeah. movie with the top down. And then it gets those must be the best snow tires in the world on it for the end of the film. They spent time with the tires, not so much with the windshield wipers, but look, Bond hasn't had sex in 20 minutes of screen time. It's time to roll in the hay. <laughs> this movie's it's ridiculous. Yeah, it is. It's, it's not. If you look at this from the angle of how it treats oppressed groups and minorities of any kind, you're not going to be happy with what None you say. None of the yeah. segments were positive today, and we got more. <laughs> There's a reason Tomorrow Never Dies, Michael. Okay, so you have Blofeld, who's been established in a couple movies already. He's gone from everything. He's plastic surgery. He could change his face. He could change his blah, blah, blah. And now his big cover for this interaction with James Bond and MI6 is establishing this internationally renowned Blofeld facility for allergy research. I gotta say, as a cover... You don't get better than what the 60s and 70s movies came up with as far as getting these things off. Like, Chinatown was about water use. People forget that. The Blofeld in this movie is trying to cure sinus headaches. That's kind of creative. I didn't mind that. Right. The plan goes nowhere. Is this Blofeld's cousin or something? Is this other Blofeld? Is this French Blofeld? Uh, it ha- it- I hope so, for the movie's sake. Was Le- Le- Lazenby just pronouncing a blowjob? <laughs> Did he just give up with the pronunciations, the various ones, and in George W. Bush style, just give Blofeld the nickname you, of you, Blowjob? You fool me once, you can't fool me again. The audio was awful. The awful. audio was awful. awful and we didn't I even mention it in the sound. I had to replay stuff two, three, four times, and I gave up on some points. I had no idea what they were saying. Look, they, they don't follow through on the Stepford Wives plotline. Maybe that was meant for a second film. I don't know. They don't care about any of that beyond Bond be able to bed somebody while he's away from, you know, the other women. Uh, I, I will say that uh, this is another example of the most ridiculous, easy to, not easy to escape from, but escapable prison cell out there. Like, so it wasn't even a prison cell, though, right? It was a hotel room. If you want to entice your captor to stay within the walls of a hotel room, give him some amenities. Don't give him a four-inch by four-inch TV that doesn't even look like it could turn on. <laughs> and 
you know, pique his interest by having choppers fly by his window to undescript locations? Yeah, or lock the door. <laughs> you know, just lock the door proper like and don't if he waves at something at the top, they can get out. Yeah. But the biggest problem with any of this, never mind Blofeld's ability to manage a hotel, Kojak Blofeld here, as Telly Savalas played Blofeld this movie, he was yeah. known for Kojak. If this is Blofeld Blofeld, who's already had many run-ins with James Bond, yeah. why does it take him until their third meeting in this movie for him to be like, wait a minute, you're James Bond? <laughs> See, Blofeld uh, had his eyes replaced and his memory wiped. No, I don't know. I don't know. That's why I'm asking, seriously, is this not the same guy? I hope, for the movie's sake, it isn't. Is this not the same Bond? Is this why people have the theories about Bond right. just being a code name and this is a different person? Literally. Because they have conversations in this movie before Blofeld has the realization that he's talking to James it Bond. It can't be a different person because when Bond is packing before and he's and he's literally hearing the scores from the previous five films. <laughs> and in the beginning of the movie, they're trying to connect this Bond to the last Bond yeah. because they're showing a highlight reel of the previous five movies inside of that hourglass during the opening song. Yeah. Of course it's supposed to be the same James Bond. It's I just... Would... They're, think they're so. picking up the character where it's left off. And this is not supposed to be the same Blofeld, though. Did I miss that exposition? We need someone to tell us. Mumbling? Be right, because we did miss a fair amount, probably, in, in our rage and, and just disappointment with this film. So if this has been established and we just talked over it and have completely missed it, let us know. But to my recognizance and recollection, I'm under the impression that this is just a gaping plot hole that... They chose not to address, and nobody pointed out, which parlays itself into a problem with Blofeld's plan and why we need to have and enter the Goldfinger segment where we rewrite the capability of the bad guy for this James Bond movie. All right, so number one, just shoot him in the head, Blofeld. Just shoot him. How easy is that? <laughs> just shoot him. That's obvious. It's Austin Powers' joke already. Now... He, no, he puts him in when he actually captures him again. Oh, you're, you're James Bond. I finally reckon. <laughs> it finally hit me. That's who you are. I knew I saw right. you somewhere. I knew we'd run into each other before. Did you go to Quahog High School? <laughs> you're James Bond. Are you Jesus Christ? All right, so I'm going to elaborately just put you in a cell where you can climb out. Right. It's not even a cell, by the way. He's Go to the boiler room. <laughs> <laughs> go to the go to the room where you have all these contraptions. It's a glorified jungle gym, and you can exit out this giant gaping window that's not shut. Through the car or the monorail or whatever that thing's yeah, called. The right? ski lift. Ski yeah. lift is going in and out of, and it is fucking three o'clock in the morning in the Swiss <laughs> Alps, and there are four. Count them four. <laughs> Trips back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Who's going in and out of this evil lair at that time of night? It's a great point. Why are they even active? You would think 11 p.m. shut it all down. What's ha what is happening? Great point. It's in the middle of the night where Bond was sneaking out to have his, you know, liaison with the <laughs> his tryst, his nightly tryst. So we have a man that's a terrible hotel manager as the main bad guy. He doesn't know what to do when he has James Bond captured, nor does he even apparently recognize when he has James Bond within guns reach of him until the third meeting. But yet the plan that Blofeld goes with, this Stepford Wives plan, 
makes no sense. It, it, what is the end game of this? This becomes that 1980s ski movie where they're just having a race and the right. South Park parody. <laughs> because this movie just becomes a Let's Chase Bond through Swiss, Switzerland. Oh, Alps. that's what happens, yeah. So, but we're not giving a natural end to his plan. plan. No, there's no natural end to the plan. And he, again, even, he's, even though he's got this great plan... And I think it's a, a great It's point. creative. He's going to sterilize the world. Right. He's going to essentially all of uh, all of the animal kingdom. He's going to sterilize them. It's going to give a famine. It's basically coronavirus. He injects these these women <laughs> with this virus that's going to petrify the world. Except Dramatic has... irony is going to kill us all in real life, <laughs> people. He has no way of knowing the extent to which this virus will spread. He has no way of containing it. It doesn't do anything for him. At least Goldfinger, I'm going to take that amount of gold because my amount of gold will increase. That makes sense. I don't understand the end game that Blofeld is going for unless he's just the Heath Ledger Joker it's where he wants to watch the world burn. Do what they always, let's just do what we always do and hold the world to ransom after getting some nuclear warheads, or in this case, sterilizing the population. Look, so number one, gold, our Goldfingers will type out, recognize your arch nemesis. Yes. Number two, just follow through on your plan here. I mean, yeah. it's a good evil plan. Number three, Michael, is have a more fortified base. <laughs> again, People with the going in and out. three helicopters. <laughs> again, with the couple of army guys. There's 20. 20 army guys. And the anonymous henchmen get beat up by everyone. They're worthless. We can't even give these guys the moniker of supervillains because they no. don't have enough henchmen that are willing to blindly follow their plot to their deaths. Every one we've had so far has had 40 guys at the most at their disposal. <laughs> That's all they've been able to recruit. They have more scientists than <laughs> right? henchmen. It's true. It's exactly true. It's a bad numbers game for them, and it doesn't take much. It takes a couple of rogue heli helicopter-transported mobsters and bond. Yeah! <laughs> no end game for this plot. What a terrible plan. Creative, but makes no sense. It's like he wanted to have these sleeper agents specifically to give himself immunity from having sleeper agents. That was his circular line of thinking. I don't know. It and makes no sense. Of course, going down the luge, right, in the mm -hmm. bobsled, uh, you know, Dr. Evil is lifted out of there after they're having a fist fight, not looking forward in the luge. I mean, it takes. It's like on autopilot. All of your butt <laughs> clenching to, to hug those turns, right? There's no way You're you can right. turn around, fist fight another guy, and you don't fly off. Right. Or at least so go off the side and ridiculous. the side of the hedgehog loop. But of course, they're having this elaborate fist fight. Bond lifts him up. He going uh, fast. Mm -hmm. They're going, you know, not terminal velocity, no. but they're... You want to get 70 miles an hour. 70 miles per hour. He takes a tree branch, wishbone style tree branch to the neck. <laughs> and Bond's like, hmm, he's branched off. And then in the next scene with Blofeld, he's just driving a car in a neck brace and a hunch. Frau with the drive-by. This is what happens in this movie. You're absolutely right. Mike, I hate this fucking movie. And... You could go even deeper into the ending of uh, this. Uh, this is like the the, the bat basketball. I'm the owner of the beers. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Bond does all this as a private citizen. 
I don't think anyone brings that up. He's not a member of MI6 for a lot of this because he's forced to go on vacation and given direct orders right. to not pursue Blofeld. So the legal action could be horrendous. Yes. We can have a whole nother segment after the one that we're actually going to have here. License to Bill, where we tally up and account for all the damages bonds, bond caused and what it might cost. But the legal action... <laughs> In today's society would cripple yes. the British MI6 economy. would fall. Yeah, it's the British economy. You'd have Brexit against Britain's will. Blofeld doesn't even need to enact his sleeper agent super no. plan to ruin Great Britain and, and Her Majesty's anything. And how does MI6 respond to all this? Throwing a wedding, a lavish, luxurious wedding for the man that was basically committing treason against them entire movie long, knowing for a fact either he or his wife, because of the line of work he's in, are going to die, which happens immediately. Yeah, I mean, this is like the whole Spider-Man argument. We know this is not going to go well. <laughs> we know they're lingering on the drive away forever. Right. Right? I mean, stop and just stall here and take the flowers <laughs> off my car. And we know. We know. It's obvious. All right, so License to Bill, let's talk about the damage. Mike, I was surprised. Mm -hmm. 25 minutes into this movie, and other than your everyday James Bond assault and battery, we don't have that much damage to go yeah, about. he drives his car on a beach. Uh, one hotel room gets pretty messed up for no reason, but I don't know if it was yeah. his hotel room. Was her hotel room? I don't, I don't remember whose it was either, but that's like the extent of it, right? One of the mobster heavies is in there, and they have a big fight yeah. and whatever. So you get a bill for that on your visa. Now, Blofeld's gorgeous, and it, it's a destination <laughs> it today. His gorgeous uh, base on top of the On Alps. top of a mountain. <laughs> I mean, he's paying a team of scientists. Yep. Who's bankrolling this guy? I mean, this is, you know, the dream evil lair for many, yeah. you know, it's evil a ski warlords. Resort. It's an actual yeah. ski resort. And Bond blows it up. <laughs> what would you put the price tag at everything, including salaries, lives lost, equipment, overhead, obviously chemicals and science? <laughs> what, what's the value of what happened? Billion gajillion dollars. <laughs> it has to be easy. And Bond Tim blows it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want a gajillion, bajillion dollars. <laughs> That's what this is. And it, it's priceless. It's a priceless setting. And again, he does it. May I remind everyone, as a private citizen. All right. Well, Blofeld owns the place. Right. Now, in today's site, could Blofeld sue? Can, could he counter sue? <laughs> yeah, but he can't sue MI6. No, He's got to sue James Bond, All the man. Right. That avalanche, you think the avalanche might have... Uh... I think it probably took out some people, right? It was a big avalanche. However, Bond is running from this avalanche, and they keep showing it coming. Mm -hmm. It's like the t my tidal wave. It's, it's a tsunami. It's still coming, It's I taking think. everybody in its path. <laughs> it's going to cover all of Switzerland. <laughs> right? Yep. Blofeld makes the crack where even the great 007 won't walk away from this mm -hmm. grave or whatever he says. It's over. Yeah. It's done. Seconds later, two seconds later, Bond literally just brushes off both elbows. He's covered with a dusting. She's popping out of the top of it, and he's like, get the girl. And then he literally, at two swipes of the hand, gets up in pursuit. That was close. And he doesn't even go in pursuit. He goes back to M. He's yeah. like, we should go and storm this base because... They're doing some bad shit. And M's like, you will not. That's an order. And then he takes the mobster. He's like, hey, your daughter's up there. Let's go. So I guess if you're looking at it from the uh, town manager perspective, 
the comptroller perspective where you're accounting for all this damage, you're relieved. This is uh, by far the, the best least... case scenario for an avalanche. Yeah, there's no commissioner in the in the station that's like, you know, just banging the desk and yelling at, you know, uh, Riggs and Murtaugh. Yeah. This one. So it looks like the town and the country of Switzerland and whoever, whatever governments are involved here got off kind of light because I think Blofeld is the only victim that had financial loss. Yeah, I mean, a couple of the stock cars, which are probably bumper cars right. in that race anyway, but they're, yeah, a couple of their sides are wrecked. But otherwise, no. The MI6 not get a, a huge bill in this one. So all in all, a success around <laughs> I, I, I legitimately was seething during this movie. If you couldn't tell. I know that's why were. I'm so upset that the No Time to Die is not more time to live and that we have this episode to leave you this all with. This is our swan song. This is where we leave you with the James Bond character study. You guys are going to probably like at this point, why the fuck did you guys even do this? You hate these movies. You're correct. Thus far, I like a lot of Bond movies. We just haven't gotten to any yet. And maybe we will in November. <laughs> But until then, guys, that is where we leave you and the James Bond character study. Uh, we'll let you know what's coming next. We really haven't figured it out yet because that news just broke about two hours before we hit record here today. So uh, we do want to know your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns about Lazenby's portrayal of Bond, about On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and about everything Sean Connery did as well. What do you think about the coronavirus's impact on changing the new Daniel Craig Bond release date? Let us know all that. You can leave us those at Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram, at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com com and on reddit uh if you're a big james bond fan we ask you once again to please not leave us a five-star review <laughs> <Not after this. laughs> but if you appreciate and had some laughs then maybe you wouldn't mind doing so on the apple podcast app. Uh, our goal is as a podcast and as film critics that you guys will keep coming back even if you don't like our opinions because we're a fun show i hope sometimes <laughs> maybe at least cathartic <laughs> i don't know i think we lost fans in this episode i'm pr probably I don't want those fans if they see value in this type of stuff. That's Bad, fine. <laughs> see ya. <laughs> Fuck you too, bro. <laughs> That's what just happened in this episode. <laughs> All right. Words of wisdom, Michael, and what's coming next? Not this movie. That's yeah. my words of wisdom. Not this movie. I hate this movie. I'm sorry. The, give me other movies, not this movie. We're a film appreciation podcast. I don't appreciate this film. Sorry. That's fair. Gotta call him yeah, like I said. No, we're we're gonna sometimes. be honest with I you guys. Was, uh, yelling at it all night. We said at the outset of this, we will give it the credit it deserves and the derision and criticism that it merits. And this one merited quite the amount of criticism. Yeah. So, with that in mind, as far as what's coming next, tune in and find out. Well, we got Onward. Yes. We're going to review Pixar's Onward next uh, with uh, a special guest we think we hope. And uh, we will be reviewing current films because what the fuck else are we going to do now? <laughs> no, but we got MMOWs. <laughs> we got a quarterly Oscar race checkpoint at least at the beginning of this season. If any of you are still listening right now, we will figure something out. We will do something fun. We will review some movies that and we we'll like. And we'll take suggestions. And we'll take suggestions. <laughs> Most importantly, we will take suggestions. What should we do? <laughs> what movies do you think we will like? Or uh, do, do we have to review movies that we like? Should we just lean in to the hate and just hate on more movies because hate consume. Do you like this? 
Let us know. <laughs> do, do let us know, guys. When reality sucks or, you know, the movies you're watching do, you can come watch other films with us, hopefully, or at least listen to our insane ramblings thereon. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round. Without the stuffiness, we will see you guys very soon. See you.